Dear God, I, I pray that I pray that your presence be um, experienced in this meeting today. Thank you for how you've you've blessed in the past and just now. Um, because you've blessed, especially because you've blessed, um, without your further blessings, we're we're done. Um, we just have to have you in order to be successful in the thing you things you've called us to. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Um, the previous session, just to give a little bit of an overview, I talked about my own experience with um, complacency, and the title of it was the undoing of the saints, but the full phrase is complacency will be the undoing of the saints. I, was, I explained that I was the good guy that got the pats on the back and told, you know, you're just wonderful and all this stuff. And, but I really knew that that was not me. You know, I, I wanted to be the, I wanted to be good, but I wasn't good. And that was very much a struggle for me. And, and God gave me a passage in the Bible that's um, become my favorite verse and it's changed my life. It's um, John fourteen twelve, which Jesus says that, in essence, he says that we'll do greater things than him because he's going to the Father. It's very Adventist. It's very humbling. It's very much a call to action. It's just an incredible passage. And um, at the end of this entire kind of monologue or dialogue that ends in a, 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 the longest prayer in the Bible, Jesus prays something that's um, a bit of a mystery. He's, he prays that we'll be one with him, that the believers actually, that those who believe on him through the word of his disciples will be one with will be one with Jesus. It's his dying request. It's at the end of the longest prayer in the Bible. So this is, this is a pretty important thing. And we briefly discussed that you can get very much off the right path in the concept of being one with Christ. Or the last phrase of that prayer, it's in John seventeen twenty six. It's I and them. We can get off. I mean, you, probably you're familiar with some of the the controversy surrounding spiritual formations and such things, and rightly so. And I just used Kellogg to back up that we do need to be very careful with what we mean when we say I and thee are, are having God in us because Kellogg went down the route of pantheism and ultimately helped create the science, was the fa- one of the fathers of creating the science in America that Hitler used to justify the Holocaust. Um, Hitler was not a guy that did not use logic. He very much used logic. So, so now, um, going from a testimony, we want to go to looking at what does it mean to be made one with Christ? What is that? Um, it's easy to say, and we all can raise our hand and say, yes, I want that, but we don't want to go bad routes, but we want this experience. So what does it mean biblically to be, to be one with Christ? Um, and that's what we're going to be exploring today. A key, key thing that Dwayne Lemon will point out, I believe he pointed out this morning, a key thing that we all should keep in mind is, is understanding where we are in prophecy, it's easy for us to kind of dissect a walk with God, to dissect Adventism, to put the Sabbath over here and the state of the dead over here and to put prophecy in Daniel and Revelation seminars and stuff like that over here. But actually, there's an incredibly beautiful unity between all of them. And, and as was pointed out this morning, what gave Jesus so much power was He understood His place in prophecy. He, in fact, said, this has been fulfilled in front of you today. I want everyone to um, turn in their Bibles to Revelation chapter 10 and verse 7. Revelation chapter 10 and verse 7. This comes at a real critical point, at least for Seventh-day Adventists. We tend to believe that the seventh trumpet is, is a message that we are to give to the world. 
We believe we live in the time of the seventh trumpet. And uh, Revelation 10, verse 7 says some interesting things about this. It says, But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God will be finished, as he declared to his servants, the the prophets. I want us to look at what is this mystery, this mystery of God. Because it doesn't just say the mystery of God will be revealed. It says it will be what? Finished. So this mystery of God is going to be finished during the time of the proclamation of this seventh trumpet. We live, we understand as Seventh-day Adventists, we live in the time of the, of the declaration of the seventh trumpet. What is this mystery of God, though, that's going to be revealed? Turn with me to Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 through 29. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 through 29. It says, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So he's in essence saying, you've been kind of split apart, but you've, been, but you've come together as a result of the gospel. It goes on to say something very neat. It says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Next part. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God God willed to make known that they are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what is the mystery of God? Christ in us. You study this passage and Christ he's saying, he's saying there's a gospel that's made possible by the death, basically the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. This gospel has brought us together, was made possible by Christ, but the mystery of the gospel then is Christ in us. So this concept is not just in John 17. It's in the Pauline, Pauline writings as well, and we'll see it in the next seminar in actually another, another book of, of Paul's. But the, the mystery of God then is, is, is Christ in us. Now, what did we read in, in Revelation 10, 7? That during the time of the seventh trumpet, that this mystery of God will be what? Completed or finished. So during the time of the seventh trumpet, the time that we now live in, we are to experience what? God in us. The completeness of God in us. Now, that's, that's rather profound. It goes on in Colossians, he says quite a bit more about it. Turn to um, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Actually, you're probably right there. It says, For I want you to know that a great conflict, what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. That's interesting. We most identify ourselves with what church? The Laodicean church. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being what? Knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the what? 
of the mystery of God. So the idea of Christ in us, it's going to have as a, as a byproduct what? We're going to be knit together. This is, this is John's, this is, I mean, excuse me, Paul's driving force. Christ died, was buried and resurrected, and made possible the mystery of God, which is Christ in us. And he's saying that we will be knit together. We will become one as a result of this. And Revelation predicts that this will happen in a complete fashion during what? During the time of the seventh trumpet. So your devotional life, your experience with God is not just something you do every morning so that you can have a good day. Your devotional life is supposed to be the prediction fulfilled for the time that we live in. It should result in oneness with God that knits you together with other people. Now we all know that's a great theory, but can it really happen? Of course I believe it can really happen. But when we look around us, we can oftentimes get discouraged, right? Because we don't see it happen like we like we think maybe it should, or like we would like to see it happen. We want to see something to join, or we see that happening, but we see our church oftentimes being what? Pulled apart, not being what? Knit together. Our job is not, as, as I talked about in the last seminar, our job is not to critique the world around us. Our job is to have this experience. And the byproduct will be so powerful, we will be knit with other people, and we will be knit to God in a way that's, that's undeniable. At the end of, at the end of Colossians, he, he talks about some similar things. Um, turn to Colossians chapter 4, I believe it's verse 2 and 3. It says, Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak what? The mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So he's saying this mystery of God, this, this being knit together, this Christ in us, I'm in chains to it. Is this a bad thing to him? No, it's, actually, it's, it's a good thing. But he's saying, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm sold out. I don't have anything else to give. I'm, I'm, I'm in bondage to this oneness with Christ. He's, he's, he's a complete slave. And the concept of slavery is actually very beautiful in the Bible. We're told you won't even understand Revelation unless you're a doulos, unless you're a slave. It's, the book's meant to not be understood by anyone that's not in slavery to Christ. That's not in that type of a committed, completely committed relationship. And so he's saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm experiencing this, and I'm looking for opportunities to tell people about it. Now, how much more for you and I who live in the time of the seventh trumpet, the time when this is not just to be told about, but this is to be, this experience, this mystery of God, of God is to be what? Completed or finished. We are, it's prophesied that we will experience what John talked about. And what Paul was begging the, Coloss- the people of Colossia, Colossia, I can't remember how to say, say the actual city, what he was begging them to experience. John talks about this same thing. John chapter 17, which we talked about a little bit in the last seminar. John chapter 17, the, the final, in fact, just a little bit of background. Do you guys know why the book of John was written? It's not a synoptic gospel. The first three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called the synoptic gospels, which is just a fancy name. I don't know why we use the word synoptic. I'm sure there's a good reason, but it's the same. They're similar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. They're written probably in similar time periods, and they cover similar 
concepts. They talk about, they tend to talk about Jesus' Galilean ministry. John doesn't. It centers on, it centers on Jerusalem. It doesn't, and, and here's why John was written. It was, it's said to be written later than the, than the Synoptic Gospels. It was written because, did John, did John die a martyr's death? No. John was the last physical link of the church to Christ. And so he wrote a book to explain that you don't need a physical link to have a relationship with Christ. So the book of John is most pertinent. I mean, all the books of the Bible are very pertinent for us, but John is especially pertinent for us because we do not have a physical link. It was written for us, so it starts off. How does John start off? We all know this. In the beginning was the... Okay, so you see the theme, obviously, starting off. You read the miracles of John. There's very little touch. It all emphasizes the word. There's the touch of like the, the, the spitting on the dirt and then putting the mud on his eyes, but the guy's got to go somewhere else to make the miracle actually happen. There's the, um, the feeding of the 5,000 where there's some touch there. But touch isn't what's emphasized. The, the prayer is emphasized. And when you look at all the miracles of John, it's very much emphasizing this concept of you can have a relationship with God through His what? Through His Word. And then in John 17, you have this amazing prayer. The longest prayer of Christ in the Bible, right before He dies. Read it. You look at it in your Bible, it's all red. And then it's almost all black with a few little red sentences here and there, because he's about to die. So can we deduce that John 17 is important? Yes or no? It's his longest prayer. It's right before he dies. This is an important prayer. The first part of this prayer, he talks about what? He, talks about, he, said, he asks for God to glorify him. The second part of this prayer, he, he prays for, for God to keep his disciples in the very mission that he set them out for. And then the third part of the prayer, he starts off, it starts in John 17, 20. He says, neither prayer for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Their being the disciples. That's who he was just praying for. Who are we? We're the ones who believe on Jesus through who? Their word. Because of their testimony. You guys have your Bibles open now. And it goes on to talk about, he says, that they may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may be one in us. And he goes on and he talks about giving us his glory. Jesus says, I'm giving them my glory so that they can be made one. But he doesn't just say one. He says what kind of one? Perfectly one. And that they, they will love each other. That, they'll be, that this oneness, this being knit together will make them one with each other in this capacity. And then at the end, he cries out. It's really, it's just a beautiful concept. You could spend weeks on In fact, Ellen White talks about in um, the eighth, eighth Testimony, chapter 38, she says we should dwell on She calls us to focus on the ideas and uh, application of this, of this prayer. The, read that. It's a short chapter. Chapter, um, chapter 38 of the Eighth Testimony. It's, it's all about the end of John 17. Beautiful, beautiful little um, commentary, if you will, there. So at the end of this, Jesus is just crying out, O righteous Father. And at the end, He uses a phrase. He says, I and them. Do you think Jesus' dying request was important to God? Yes or no? Absolutely. So that then makes sense why Paul would then continue in the spirit of this. It makes sense then why, now we have in Revelation, it says that during the time of the seventh trumpet, this mystery of godliness, which we know is Christ in who? Christ in us, will be completed. This is, this is not just a little bit important, guys. This is vital. And it's probably the biggest reason that people turn their back on God because they look at Christians and they say, well, it doesn't work. 
It's a great concept. Love your enemies. That sounds great. But when I go to churches, they argue. When I go to churches, they don't get along. When I go to whatever, they, they use us as evidence against ourselves. But we're told by Christ's dying request that this is not going to be the ultimate experience of His people. And we're told by prophecy that we can and will experience this in completeness. Now, I struggled with this because I wanted this. And, and during a time, I took off a year of college. While I was here at Southern, I, I, I got to take off. I'm going to end up getting way down the road and changing my major, and it's going to be more money than it already is. That's kind of what I was, I was in fear of. And, um, but I was looking for this experience. And I was asking God very specifically. I said, I want, what is the essence of a relationship with you? In other words, if I was to boil, metaphorically, if I was to boil a relationship with you, what would I, I want to boil it down to the most basic level of which to go any hotter would burn it so it ceased to be that thing, but I want it to be at the most basic level. Does that make sense? Like I want the most, the simplest form of a relationship with you. I want to understand that. And this, this, this was, there was a lot of time and prayer and, and searching. And one night, while I was task force dean, I was on my knees praying. And the previous year, I had taken a class that forced us to memorize a lot of scripture. And a scripture popped to my head. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It says, all scripture is the more accurate translation would be God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. And is profitable for four things. For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be what? Complete. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. I was struggling because it was easy for me to look at the world around me and say, man, this doesn't make sense. Why isn't my church more what I think it should be? But I was also struggling because why was I struggling with the same sins over and over and over and over? If God's so powerful, why do these sins... Isn't He more powerful than Satan? Why do I keep struggling with this? So I was struggling with what was outside of me, but I was struggling with what was inside of me as well. And this scripture starts off, how are we created? How did we come into this into this world as, as humanity. God did what to us? He formed us, right, out of dirt. And then He did what? He breathed into us. So this passage is teaching that God's Scripture, God's Word, has the capacity to what? Recreate. And I was needing this. And also at the end of this passage, it says that the men of God may be what? Complete... Thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I was wanting that. I was wanting to be complete. I wasn't complete. In the honesty of my brain, I was like, I'm not what I need to be. And I'm also not treating people the way I, I want to treat them. And, and I see other people not treating people the way I think they should be treating people. Does that make sense? So this passage had the essence of what I was after. It promised to recreate me to be complete and to be able to do good works. And so as I'm sitting there on my knees, I I start just in my head, I said, okay, doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. What's the most basic doctrine of the Bible? And here's where we'll start a model. What's the most basic doctrine? I mean, you boil it down, and and I just barely got, so I wrote a rough draft that night of what I'm about to share with you. And it ended up, I just kept kind of stewing over it and boiling it, marinating it, you could say, since we're here in the South. You, you just kind of get in, what is this? The most basic doctrine of the Bible I would propose to you is that God is. That's very, I mean, that's very basic, right? God is. So let's write that on the Bible. So, on the board. God is. So that's the most basic doctrine is teaching. The most basic teaching of the Bible is that God is. 
What's the most basic reproof of the Bible? Most basic reproof. Pretty simple, huh? I mean, that's just really basic, right? I'm not. For those who may be listening on audio verse, the, the most basic doctrine is God is. The most basic reproof is I'm not. So what is it? The, the, the 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says doctrine, reproof, correction. What's the most basic correction of the Bible? God gives. Right? I mean, that's it's real simple, right? I'm wanting the most simple thing I can find. The most basic correction in the Bible is God gives. And then the final statement, the, the final thing is instruction in righteousness, right? What's the most basic instruction in righteousness? I give. I mean, does that make sense? Instruction in, in righteousness and in, in being righteous is how I treat you and how I treat you and how you treat... I mean, that's... It's very, I mean, it's just boiling it down to the most simple possible concept. So I, so I wrote something out. I went to bed. I started thinking about this. I went camping for a long time thinking about this. I mean, I was really like, I mean, I'm like centered like a laser on what does it mean to have God in me? Because I want this. I want to be complete. I want the experience of this passage. But the reality is I know I don't have it. And when I look around me, I'm just guessing that a lot of people don't have it. It's what I was saying in my life. This is what I came up with. For those listening, um, it's kind of like a circle. You start off at north with God is. And you draw kind of a little arc down to the west place and say, I'm not. And then you draw another arc down to south where you put God gives. Then you draw an arc up towards east and say, I give. And then back to north, you draw another arrow that says, God is. This is, this is what I felt God led me to. And it's just a model, just a concept. It was a beginning, and I could defend it biblically. I could say, you know, this seems to be something I based on the Bible. And maybe, maybe you guys would have like a different concept. I, I don't know, but, but this is very, very basic, and from my perspective, very biblical. What does it mean, though? It's easy. It's abstract, right? God is. I'm not. God gives. I give. But look at what you can do. You can play with this thing in so many ways. Probably one of the most obvious things that God is, is what? Love. I'm not. God gives. I give. I give love, right? Does that make sense? Are we capable of loving? Because I was trying to love, and it wasn't happening right. Are we capable of loving? No. But God is love. Am I love? No, I'm not. I don't have love naturally. Does God give me love? And after God gives me love, then I can what? Then I can give love. And you can put so many things there. God is perfect. Am I perfect? No, I'm not perfect. God gives what? Perfection. Can I give perfection when God gives it to me? Absolutely. If God gives me something, absolutely I can pour it on. God is righteous. I'm not righteous. God gives righteousness. Then I can give righteousness. It just creates this, this simple model in my head that is like, okay, now I have, I have some of the... Some of the basics. Does this make sense? And so, so I started working on this, and I've actually, um, here's a time where I need to say something. I've been, this is in the process of being, um, well, it's copyrighted, and it's in the process of being registered, 
And so you're welcome to share news, and maybe you're like, well, I wouldn't want that anyhow, and that's totally fine. But I have to say, especially since this is being recorded, that um, it can't be used for selling or for, um, you just have to, for reproduction in ways that, how would you put it? What's that? For financial gain, and, and also if you manipulate it in, in wrong areas, then I have the right to ask you not to do that. Does that make sense? So, so this is being, this is being, there's a process going on behind this. I'm actually working on a book. I've titled it, I don't know if this is going to ultimately be the title, um, Loud Cry. And the ultimate idea that our lives are a loud cry. Not just, not just a loud cry going out and us saying things really loudly and preaching really well, but that our lives can be this experience. And so what happened for me at this time, I was really into C.S. Lewis, not Chronicles of Narnia and all that stuff, and I would very much advise against that, to be honest with you, and there's good reasons. I'd be glad to have conversations with you afterwards about that. But I wasn't into that. I was into the apologetics, the problem of pain, the great divorce, um, miracles. What else? Mere Christianity, um, the abolition of man. And another book that I was very much... People thought I knew C.S. Lewis really well, but it was only because what I read, I read well. But I read it a lot. There's a book called um, The Four Loves. And in The Four Loves, I got very frustrated with C.S. Lewis because he takes the four Greek loves, agape, storge, filio, and eros. Storge, I'll get to that one. Yeah, that one's hard to know. But Eros is the love between a husband and a wife. We get the word erotic from the word eros, I believe. Um, Filio is where we get the concept of friendship. Okay, and then storge actually is where... Are you working or are you studying? Yes. Yes? Working. What do you work as? Physician assistant. Physician assistant. Now, why does he choose to be a physician's assistant, but I choose to be a chaplain? Why? What we're passionate about. He happens to point his life in the physician's assistant direction. I point my life in the, in the direction of uh, a chaplain. You know, it's, it's, it's what we're passionate about. It's, it's the direction we choose. You know, you could talk about even um, the things we choose to love just because. The thing, a word that the, what C.S. Lewis uses, he says, he uses the word affection. The things we're affectionate about. I like what you said, passion. The things we're passionate about. Some people are passionate about dogs. Other people are passionate about cats. That's storge. But at a higher level, some people are passionate about being a physician's assistant. Some people are passionate about this, about being a chaplain. You know, it's just, so storge is just, if I told everyone in the room, point your finger at something, that's storge, whichever direction you're pointing. If I told you, point your finger at something with another person, and both of you are pointing at that clock, that's filio. You're sharing love because you have a mutual love. Does that make sense? And then eros would be two people pointing at each other. Does that make sense? In fact, we can kind of draw, draw that out here. So... Eros is this. Um, Filio is this. And then Storge is this. Does that make sense? We're still very abstract, but that's, that's basically what the three human loves are. So C.S. Lewis does a fabulous job. He's a very intelligent person. He does a fabulous job of unpacking these. But at the end, he always criticizes them. He's always like, yeah, Eros is really this, this, and this. And he, he just unpacks it in, wow, in just profound ways. And he says, but it's not really love. It doesn't really work. And then he gets to Storge. He'd do the same thing. I'm like, huh, what's Storge? And he does this amazing job of explaining it. And at the end, he's like, yeah, but it doesn't really work. And then he gets to um, then he gets to filio, and he'd say he'd just do this incredible exp- explanation of what filio is. And at the end of it, he's like, "But it doesn't really work." 
And then he gets to agape, and he says, this is the only real love, but he, it's this, he creates this abstract, because it's from God. It's, he has a Greek model. Guys, that's so dangerous. That's a completely different conversation. But Greek is not Hebrew. We are biblical. That makes us Hebrew, not Greek. The New Testament is written in Greek, but it's using Hebrew ideas, and that's that's a whole other conversation. But so so since he's in a, since he's stuck in a Greek philosophy and a Greek way of thinking, he gets to the end and he says agape, which I don't really have an arrow for agape, but I'm going to explain that in just a minute. What's that? Down? No, I'll, I'll, you'll see in just a second. It's different than that, though. He gets to agape, and he kind of meanders along and says, this is the only real love. And I'm finally, if you saw my first edition of, of The Four Loves, I'm like writing in the middle. I'm arguing with C.S. Lewis the whole time. I'm like, no, you're wrong because of this, this, and this, you know. And then he gets to agape, and he says, and this is a real love. And I'm like, yes, you finally got it. And then he ends with, this should do something, it should work, but someone better than me will have to write that. Or something, you know, he kind of just passes it off. And I'm like, you, you, you. That stinks. Like, what in the world? Like, you're just telling us there's something better, but I'm not going to really mess with it. I'm like, what? You know, then don't criticize it. Show us what the better thing is. And here's what I believe agape is. For any of these arrows to actually work, there has to be what? Energy. An arrow is only an arrow if energy, if energy can be behind it. If, if there can be a force behind it. And I don't want to get into a pantheistic thinking. Once again, this is just a model. But in order for an arrow to be an arrow, it's got to have something pushing with it. No human love will be successful if we don't have the experience of agape happening in our life. In other words, I'm not going to be successful in my love for my wife right here if I don't have God's love. If God is not giving me love, then when I give then I'm not going to be able to give love to my wife. I can fake it for a little while, but it's not going to work. And so our human loves, in essence, turn into canaries for our relationship with God. Do you know what canaries are? They're little birds that they used to take into a cave. So that if gas got in the cave, it'd kill the the canary first. And when they stopped tweeting, you'd run out of the cave because you knew it was bad. So in essence, when you're unsuccessful in your relationship with filio, with your friends, with your church community, with your family community... When you're unsuccessful with that, when that's not working, that's just a, don't try to fix that. You'll just mess it up more. Go back to your relationship with God. When your marriage isn't coming, uh, don't try to fix it. You'll mess it up more. Go back to your relationship with God. When your career, when you're trying to figure out what should I be, what should I do, and you do all these like inventories and everything else, that has its value, but don't try to fix your, your career or your affection for whatever. Go back to your relationship with God. Because when you have this, when you have agape in this circle of God is, I'm not, God gives, I give, when you have that spinning in your life, then you can give. And, and it's very biblical. The best way to give to God is to what? Love the least of these, my brethren. In fact, he says, they'll know you, by your, they'll know that you've been with me by your love for what? For each other. He predicts this. He predicts that this circle will be where? He predicts that He will be in us. And for me, I found, okay, so God, so this, this mystery of godliness, or the mystery of God, will happen during the time of the seventh trumpet. It's predicted that our time in earth's history, it will be completed. People will experience a knitting together with each other and a knitting with God because of God being, as Colossians explains, in us. And John, Christ's dying request is to be 
in us. And we know that it's that by His Word we can have a relationship with Him. And one of the best verses, passages in the Bible to explain what the Word of God is and does is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It has the power to recreate us, to make us complete beings able to do good things. And this is the essence, the, the middle of that verse. Most basic doctrine, God is. Most basic reproof, I'm not. Most basic correction, God gives. Most basic instruction in righteousness, I give. You ever tried to give and you really want to, but you can't? You ever been in that situation and you've gone and spent time with God and then later you can? That's why. These arrows won't work unless there's something that gives them power. And it, and it goes on, so, so the, idea, the idea of us experiencing this agape, this devotional life, where we accept, you know what, I want to be righteous. The most important, one of the most important steps in being righteous is to realize you're not what? Righteous. I'm not righteous. God is righteous. God can give me righteousness, and when God gives it, then... Then I have something to give. In, the ad, in, in, in churches today and in the Adventist church, the concept of perfection is very, very debated. I mean, you hear all kinds of arguments about it. It's very simple. Who's perfect? God's perfect. If God's in your life, is He more powerful or am I more powerful? He's more powerful. So if I'm letting Him have my life, how do I experience perfection? By letting Him give me Himself. By letting Him give me perfection. I don't experience it by, by me just mustering up the courage to be perfect every time I get into a bad situation. I get it by having a relationship with Him, by realizing I don't have it, but by accepting it when He does get it. And it requires choices. People will say, oh, it's just easy to just accept Jesus. That's true. It is easy to just accept Jesus, but you have to keep just accepting Jesus every other second following that one. And Satan's, and the hard part is to keep your focus on that when Satan throws in all these other distractions. I want to show you something else about this model. For me to, and we're going to get much more into this in, in the next seminar, for me to experience this, it would imply that then there would be all these other circles where Jeff is, something else is not, Jeff gives, and then something else gives. So, Jeff is love. Is being chaplain love? Is a chaplain, is, is, is ministry in and of itself, like, I have a position at Bass, right? Is that position love? No, it's not. But do I give love to it? Do I pour myself into it? Absolutely. And through, being, through that position now, that position at, at, at the academy I'm at, hopefully the idea is that then by me giving love to this, by me giving care to this, then it gives what? It gives love. The chaplain's position at Bass has an impact on the, bat, on, on the school. Take this one, that's a bit abstract. Take it to my relationship with my wife. Interestingly enough, the Bible almost doesn't even ask wives to love their husbands. That's interesting. But that's another conversation to come up next. I am to be love. And you'll hear this so often in, in, marriage, in, in marriage seminars and whatever else. People will say, what's a successful marriage? Like, uh, you know, 50-50, 75-25. What's a successful marriage? We all know it's 100-0, right? You expect zero in return. To give 100, to give 100, you have to expect zero in return. So I am to be love, not expecting Jolanda to be love. And I'm to give Jolanda love, 
with the idea in mind that it's going to take her experience to a whole new level. This, the question of her giving love, the question of her being good or giving to get this started should not even be in the conversation. We're going to talk, Ephesians actually talks quite a bit about the mystery of godliness and God in us. We're going to get into that second, the second, um, or the third, I guess, seminar. But the idea is that I give 100% regardless of, of my wife giving 100%. I am, regardless of what she is. And if I do this, if I have this experience with her, then it will then draw out a new, a new level of, of our own love through her and through me. And we'll have this amazing circle blending. But let me, let me promise you, you can ask her afterwards. There's no way that circle is going to spin. There's no way I'm going to spin this if God is not spinning this. It's not going to happen. There's no way in my career. You have no intent. I, I, ask Joe. I've talked to him recently. I've, so often I can easily get discouraged and I can say, oh, I have so much. I have to, so many responsibilities. How can I do it with this position? This position's overriding me. This position's making all my decisions in life. And what about, you know? No, no, no. The problem then is that's the canary for what? My relationship with God. I get back to God is, I'm not. God gives, I give. And then in my position... It's not love, but I give love to it. I be love regardless of what my position is. I give love to it. And then it can start to spin as it's supposed to, as it's supposed to spin. Another way of thinking about this, a little more complex. The church. In the first seminar, I talked a little bit about my struggle of looking at it growing up. I look in the church and I'm like, man, all this sounds really good, but I, but I see good people doing bad things. Why? You know, like, that whole thing, most of us who have been in, in church for very long, we, look at, we, we get these concepts. Now, think about this for a second. The church, put a G, sorry. Church is, what? The church is to be loved. The world isn't. I got terrible handwriting today. Um, the church gives. And then the world gives. Now, if that, if that happens, then the world is ultimately turning into what? It's turning into the church. And the way that happens, though, is by this gentleman here and myself both being passionate, having mutual storge for lost souls. Both being passionate. This, this man right here may be a physician's assistant, but we can probably come together in a lot of unity by love for what? By passion for lost souls. We can be in a relationship with Jesus. We can, we can be with Christ even though souls out there are not. We can give them what it's like to have a relationship with Christ. And in a result, the concept is that then they'll slowly begin with enough pressure, enough momentum building up of us coming together and loving the people out there that they'll start to jumpstart, that it'll start to give them that same experience in their life. It'll start to spin for them as well. But there's even more variables in the church than in Eros. Because in the church, where two or more are gathered together, it requires both of us to have agape spinning in our life. I have to have it, and he has to have it. We both have to have that devotion, that complete devotion to God, where, God, you are love, I'm not. You give me love, and then I'll give love. I'll tell you something, um, something else that I find very interesting about this, this model or this 
this concept. If you read um, Steps to Christ, beautiful little book. If you're ever struggling, I have students come to me, man, I'm just, I'm a little, you know, I'm committed and everything, but I'm struggling in my relationship with God. What do you recommend I do? Oh, that's easy. <laughs> read Steps to Christ and then read it again and read it after that. For me, if I'm ever like, man, you know, my, my agape, this, this circle's not spinning maybe as, it, as I would like for it to, I go back to the steps to Christ. I tell people, first answer when a student comes to me and says, oh, I'm struggling in my relationship with God. I said, tell me a time in your life when you weren't struggling, when it was, was you know, a, growing, a growing experience, and repeat whatever you were doing then. If they tell me they were doing an evangelistic series, I'm like, do an evangelistic series. If they tell me whatever, but for me, some of the most solid times in my experience with God have been reading Steps to Christ. And one day I was reading Steps to Christ after this kind of this model or this concept had come to my come to my knowledge. And I found that every chapter, every chapter of Steps to Christ fits, not necessarily as an I'm not, but it fits in how all these things relate. It just it just it just all comes together. The first chapter talking about how God is love and how He's this great good being. I mean that clearly goes with God is. Then you have repentance and you have confession and you have all these concepts of I'm not. Then you have then you have growing into righteousness and you have rejoicing. You have all these. You, every single part of the of steps to Christ kind of fits. Or I should say this fits with um, with steps to Christ and and how we are to have this this experience flowing through us of agape. We're supposed to f- fill our cups, right? We're supposed to be overflowing. And when Jesus said to the woman at the well, I can give you water where you won't thirst. The idea wasn't that you drink this water and all of a sudden you'll never thirst again. The idea was my water will keep coming to you. It'll keep coming to you. It'll keep spinning. You'll keep having this. You won't tr- keep going to Eros and getting all these bad situations that you're in. You'll come to Agape and you'll, and you'll have this, this, my love will, keep, will continue in your, in your walk with me. It's very powerful. Very, very, very powerful. And I want to leave you, um, well, we'll have a couple, couple minutes for questions. Think about the power of the concept of God being in us, being completed during the time of the seventh trumpet. It doesn't say it will happen. It says it will be completed. That implies, that means that it's possible for us to experience oneness with God at such a level that there's evidence. There's evidence in the way I live my life, and there's evidence in the way that me and this physician's assistant joined together to evangelize the world. The gospel is not going to go to the world because we, we tell the world all the right things. The gospel is going to go to the world when we show the world the mystery of godliness being completed. My prayer is that, that and I ask you to pray for me as I'm finishing up the, the thing I'm writing right now based on this. My prayer is that, that we will not stick with ideas only, but we'll take those ideas and we'll experience what it means to actually be knit together with God and each other in a way that is undeniable. We're all walking miracles of Christ doing greater things through us than He did through Himself. Let's bow our heads. Dear God, thank You so much for being a good God. Thank You for loving us. Thank You for caring enough to come, die, and be resurrected and be in heaven now. And we depend on you 
to make your dying request true in our lives. We invite you to be in us. We invite you to be one with us. We admit that we're powerless to make it happen. We admit that we don't understand everything about it. But we plead that you give us biblical paradigms for our devotional life, biblical paradigms for being formed spiritually. And God, we consider it a great honor to be able to be part of the people to experience the completed mystery of godliness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.